0: pray Father we come before you today asking that you would be glorified in the things that we do and in the things that we say we pray that we might learn more about you and in learning more about you we might recognize your love for us and in recognizing your love for us might we be more dedicated to do those things that would please you now our father be with us during this time as we open your word Use it for your honor, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, I pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. The other day, Pam shared a devotional with me from Dr. David Jeremiah's devotional, Turning Point. The devotional was for December 29th, and was was a quote by Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, who is the president of an organization called Christian Thinkers Society. And the quote goes as follows. Faith and the mind are not at odds. Faith is not believing nonsense. Faith is not embracing unreasonable, illogical things. In short, faith is not stupid. Some people seem to have faith in faith, as Dawkins and other atheists have in fact pointed out. Faith is intelligent, it is educated, it is learned, it is hungry for understanding. A healthy faith is a seeking faith. A healthy faith is not satisfied to be ignorant or to be naive, to remain in the dark or to pass on misinformation. I also read from Dr. John Piper that he had learned something over teaching a number of years at seminary and students. He said one of the things that he found out about many people was that they were happy with the understanding that they had with God and didn't want to take it any further. And I think that that's a sad thing to say. I think that our our goal ought to be every day to learn more and more about our God and our Savior Jesus Christ in order that he might be glorified in everything that is said and everything that is done. After all, It's in knowing him that we really have life. In him, we can know what is in our future. In him, we can know that we can be the people that God wants us to be. So as I share with you on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, I have to admit to you that I have an ulterior motive. That ulterior motive is to teach you. Um, you know, we become, and it's always nice to have nice stories and things like that. But as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that I can do for us and for me, and as I begin to study each text that I'm going to have the opportunity to share with you, my my request for myself is, teach me about you, Lord. Teach me about you. Because when I learn about you, then life can be so much better, because I understand the things that are happening. Well, this morning I'd like to look with you at a passage in Luke chapter two. I have to admit to you there have been, and maybe it's just something that I've blocked out, but it's not a section that I can remember having a lot of sermons preached on. Uh, it's the sermon. It's the, it's the passage that we read from Luke chapter two, verses 41 through 52. Uh, it's, a, it's a familiar story. It's a familiar story in the sense most of us know that Jesus went to the temple and that he was in the temple and he was with the teachers and he did this and he did that and these things. But the question that we, had to ha- we have to ask ourselves is, so what? Is it just a nice story or is there something important for us there? When Luke writes the gospel, he writes it basically to Gentiles. To the Greeks, as it were, he's a physician. He's somebody that is learned. He knows. He knows what it's about. He knows what it means to write history. And basically, that's what he says. He says, "I'm dedicating this book to Theophilus. Uh, perhaps Theophilus was his uh, uh, was was someone who had had backed him, had been a supporter of Luke, had had looked to him." uh provided for him and he writes to theophilus there are some who say that that may just be a be a name that's used for those who are god lovers but in any case he writes this to people who were probably greek and that's the emphasis and one of the things that we need to remember is that the time that luke lived along with with uh, paul and the others the greeks thought that there was um, there was a, a, a there was no meeting together of both material and and spirit. Spirit was good, material was evil, therefore God could never ever become material because it was inherently evil. so one of the things that Luke wants to do is that he wants to emphasize that God became man in order that he might provide. Life for those who are men. I love, the, I, I, I love our, uh, our, uh, uh, our, our uh, colic for this morning. It reminds us of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I love the aspect that we will uh, look at the incarnation as we, as we do the Gloria today. And it will look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And here we are on the second Sunday of Christmas, the second Sunday that follows our, uh, our, our looking and, and, and remembering that Jesus, God's own son, became human. So when we look at the passage before us, Luke wants to bring us through and show us, nobody else does more of, a, of, of giving us background of the infancy and the life of jesus basically than luke does so luke begins he with jesus being born in bethlehem the shepherds come there's worship there mary has the baby we see in luke that that jesus is taken to the is taken for circumcision and given circumcision on the eighth day we find out that about 40 days after his birth that mom and dad Go to the temple in order to do dedication of Jesus, and because he's firstborn son, and to do purification, they followed the law. They were they were ones who wanted to be in covenant with God, and that and that was the aspect. Now on Wednesday we will celebrate what we know as Epiphany, and Epiphany one of the things that uh, one of the things that I told the uh, students at Grace was that sometimes, you know, we've got, uh, got creche sets, the, the manger scenes, and oftentimes what will happen is that we'll have the, the, the magi around it. Well, the problem with that is that the magi don't show up in, in Bethlehem until about two years after Jesus is born, and it basically says in the, in, in the gospel that what happens is that they, got, they went into the house. To, to bring their gifts, to worship him. So we know from that that we have the eight days, we have 40 days, we have approximately two years old. After that, they're warned to go into Egypt, and they're in Egypt, what, a year, maybe two years? Uh, but they come back. And then the next thing that we basically have in most of the Gospels is that Jesus begins his ministry. Well, not so in Luke. Luke brings us to this passage when Jesus is 12 years old. And he begins to show us how this God man is going to fulfill the work that the Father has given him to do. So at 12, he's taken there. He's coming. His parents would have gone year after year to the Passover. Now, whether he went with them or not, we don't know. But we do know that oftentimes 12-year-old boys were brought on the 12th year so that they could get a view of what was going to happen because the next year they were going to have their bar mitzvah. They were going to be sons of the commandment, sons of the law. They were going to move in to an adult relationship with the people that were there. So Jesus was brought along at the age of 12, and they, they did those things that they needed to do for the Passover. And they finished up, and they pack things up. They say goodbye to the relatives. They get on their way. They get a, they get a day's journey north toward Nazareth. And Joseph, Mary and, Mary and the children were probably in the front. Joseph followed behind. So they get to the place where they're going to camp. And Joseph comes to Mary and says, Whoa, where's Jesus? And Mary says, what do you mean? Where's Jesus? You had him, didn't you? Have you all ever heard that one before? Huh? You were responsible for this, weren't you? Huh? When I pastored in Illinois, I went to a church conference, and my wife and and my aunt uh, were with the kids. And... Uh, Rachel was about a little over two years old, and Matthew was probably about three or four months old, six months old maybe. Uh, uh, It was in June, so it was, what, five months. My wife says it was four months. And she's always right. In any case, he was a baby. So they went to the mall, You know, in those days, the olden days, everybody went to the mall to do the shopping, right? And I think they were in pennies, and they were looking at things, and they looked up. Uh, Matthew was in a stroller. Rachel was handling the stroller. Isn't it wonderful? Two-year-old handling the stroller. Looked up, and guess what? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Anxiety at its peak, no doubt. Thank God I was in Colorado. (laughs) So in any case, those things happen, don't they? It's not that Mary and Joseph were negligent. Those things happen. So they spend the night there. They go back to Jerusalem the next day. So we now have two days since they've seen Jesus, right? And then they spend at least part of the day looking for him. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple. So when we look at this, we see what he was like when he was 12 years old. The interesting thing is uh, we always want to know more, don't we? We always want to know more. So during, the, during later times, there were a couple of apocryphal books uh, uh, that were written to fill in. For us, what Jesus did right the infancy gospel of Thomas and then the Arabic infancy gospel and of course, you have to have some excitement, so Jesus was lonely one day and he's out at the uh, he's he's out playing at one of the ponds or the pools or whatever and i I don 't know whether he was bullied or just uh, you know when you're perfect it's hard to find classmates or whatever they want to do things I guess so he gets puddle of water and he makes it and he forms some some birds right Uh, clay okay maybe clay pigeons I don't know but he forms them and he says some magic words and all of a sudden they come to life well we have other stories about how he raised the dead and so forth We don't know anything about those. Those are fanciful things and nice. But Luke gives us exactly what we need to know about Jesus as a 12-year-old. So let's take a look. First of all, I'd like to say that Jesus' parents modeled faithful obedience to God. It says that every year, if we look at the passage, it says that every year they went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover— which was one of the requirements to go to, the, to three of the feasts and Passover. If, if you could make it, you were supposed to go. And what would happen is that the, the, um, the population of Jerusalem would just explode during these times with people coming from all over the place. So it was filled. So every year they did that. So Jesus saw that they were dedicated to, do, to the obedience of, of, of the Father. And he comes at the age of 12. At the age of 12, he is getting ready for his bar mitzvah. So they're going to look around and see what takes place. He's ready to become a child of the commandment. He's ready to become an adult in the community. So they've brought him there. It is at about the age of 13 that the the male sons began to do the work uh, or be trained by their fathers in in the work that they were doing. So... The expectation was that Jesus in the next year would begin to do those things that Joseph did as a carpenter. He would do the work of his father. Okay? But we have some changes that are going to come because of this visit to Jerusalem. So he's going to become part of the covenant. He's going to follow along with the guidelines and, 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 and do those things that his parents have so faithfully done over the years. And I just wanna say that I think that it's absolutely essential for us to see how important parents are in the lives of children. It is the parents who will give guidance and direction. We can do in church, we can do in school, a lot of different things, but unless you as parents are dedicated to God in the work that you are doing and in raising them, they won't see what's happening. Unless they see how important God is to you, they will not understand that. It is the responsibility of those of us as parents to do what God has asked us to do, and that is to show our children who God is and what he's done. And that's what would have happened, would it not? was the Passover. What did the Passover teach? The Passover taught that God was a God who, although he was just, he was also a God of mercy, a God who would give life to those who would believe what he had to say to them. And so that was the reenactment. When we look at this passage of Scripture, they, they come back and his parents find him. And his parents did not know in verse, in verse 43, it says, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and then they did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem, searching for him in 45. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. One of the things that we see is that Jesus is dedicated to the scriptures. Jesus is dedicated to the scriptures. You know, from the first reading and we see how God works in the lives of the people of Israel in his grace and in his mercy to bring him. We look at the book of Ephesians and how God calls people to be his own and sets them up to be his own. And this is what we see happening as Jesus is there with those who were the teachers. I don't think that there was arrogance here. I think that he was asking them questions. You know, I said to you, sometimes what we have is that we have the aspect of faith for the sake of faith. And in all honesty, when I was growing up, that was kind of the way I was. If the church said it, I believed it. I didn't know why, I didn't know why, But I believed it. And I think it's responsible for us to be in God's word, to know what God's word has to say, in order that we might know what we believe. So that when we say the Nicene Creed, we can say, hey, you know what? That sounds very much like what was taught in the scriptures. Right? That's where it ought to be. And so he's sitting there. Here are all of these rabbis that are around. He's asking them questions. Oh, never thought about that before, they would say to him. And they would say, well, maybe we ought to look at it like this. We need to remember that, yes, indeed, this is a child, uh, this is a human child, but this is God's son. So h- how we get those and combine those things together, you know what? Uh, i got to take that one by faith because I don't understand it all. I don't understand how God does that. Be real truthful with you. I can't explain the Trinity to you. But there is nothing illogical about the Trinity if we believe that there's a God. There's nothing illogical about Jesus who is, God's, who is God becoming a man if we understand that there is a God who loves us and made us. God's work always begins with God's word. It's God's word that we build our life on. It's God's word that we have to build our ministry on. It's God's word that gives us the opportunity to glorify God in the things that we say and in the things that we do. And Jesus apparently absolutely astounds these teachers. They were amazed, it says. His parents were amazed, and they all heard him and were amazed at his understanding and his answers. One of the things that I ask the students is, I ask them to tell me what wisdom is. And wisdom is, the, is, is using knowledge properly. That's what wisdom is. That's understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't caring about dotting an I or crossing a T or saying that you can't turn on the light switch on a Sabbath day. What he was concerned about was, do you know the Father? Do you know what the Father has accomplished for you through but through the Son? That's what it would have been happening. Do you understand, he might have been saying, what the Messiah really is all about? You know, and it was great at 12 for him to ask those questions, but guess what happens when he gets to be 30? They don't like those questions. You know, I'm sure that what happened was they patted him on the head and said, you're a good lad, you know? But right there, he was showing that he was there to do the will of the Father. And it seems to be at this point that Luke is pointing out that Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he was there to do. Mary says to him, uh, his parents saw him and they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I have to be surrounded I have to be in in, in the place that my father has given me. Some, Some of the translations say, I need to be about my father's business. I need to be about my father's business. It's here that they recognize that Jesus knows exactly who he is. Jesus, don't you know that you've worried your father and me? And he says, Don't you know that I'm getting ready to start to do my father's business? I'm going to do what my father has given me to do, to glorify. We do this. You and I need to recognize that God loved us so much that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to be like you and me. He wants to do the work of his father. As a matter of fact, in John 17, he says to to God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before before the world existed. What is he saying? I'm God. I'm God. But what he's also saying is, I'm man. What we see here is he recognizes that he has come in the flesh to do the things that only a god man could do matthew 26 he says and going a little further he fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it's possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will and we need to recognize that sometimes when we are doing the will of the father There will be things that we will go through that will be difficult things. But it does not mean that our God is not with us. It does not mean that our God is not guiding us. It means that God is the one who is going to be glorified. The question that Mary had is, why did you do this to me? Which is the same question that you and I have oftentimes when things don't go exactly the way we want them to go in our lives. Why me? Why me? For Jesus... It was always about God is the one who is to be glorified. It's not about me. It's about him. Now, I don't understand that. There are times, you know, Jesus goes, could we do this another way? Could we do this another way? And the answer was, I'm going to be glorified in this. And when when I'm glorified through you, you too. Look over in Ephesians, what do we have happening? You become one of his children. You're raised up to be heirs with him, aren't you? When we're following the guidelines that God has laid down for us. One of the things that I want to say here is that parents don't always do the right thing. Try. Don't we try? If we're looking to God, if we're looking to God... Don't we try to do the right thing? But sometimes in our humanity, it's not there. And Jesus does. I don't see Jesus as rebuking Mary, simply saying, let me teach you. Let me teach you. Let me teach you where I want to go. And in this, what we have happening is that after three days, they found him. And when his parents saw, they were astonished. And he says, I've been searching for you. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? and they didn't understand that. and You know, and sometimes when we start to deal with the concepts of God, it's hard to understand, but nothing is illogical, okay? One of the things that I told my students over there is that my job was to prepare them to go when they wouldn't be with Father Tom or Father Don or with somebody else. My job was to prepare them for life to honor and glorify God the Father and his Son. That's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to move to a place where we can honor and glorify God. My job as a teacher is to honor and glorify him, to prepare all of us to move in life to do honor and glory to God. So what happens? Here's the God. He's saying, hey, listen, I know who I am. I'm God who has come in the flesh. But what does he do after that? Isn't it beautiful what happens after that? Look what happens. They were astonished. And then it says, and he said to them, and then they said, and they didn't understand. And in verse 51, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them as a human son he recognized do you realize how important children do you realize how important the fourth commandment is fourth commandment fifth commandment honor your father and honor your father and your mother do you realize how important that is do you realize that mocking mom and dad being disobedient. Do you know what that brought in the Old Testament? Death. Death. That's what it brought. That's how important it was. And Jesus follows along and it says, I'm going to be submissive as a child, as a human child. I'm going, when they call for dinner, I'm going to come to dinner. When they tell me to clean my room, I'm going to clean my room, I'll always clean my room. When, when they tell me, when, when they tell me that they love me and they are doing the best thing for me, that they know under God's guidance, I'm going to be submissive. And what we basically have happening there is that it says that he continued to grow. He continued to grow in favor with God and man in all aspects of life. In all aspects of life. If you don't see anything else today, what I want you to see is that God loved you so much that he sent his son as a human being. I can't help but think about what it says over in Philippians chapter 2 in a great Christmas carol. When it says, "Who thought he was in the form, who, uh, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on the cross. He became obedient, so that when we read in the book of Hebrews." For we do not have a high priest who, does not, who cannot, is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has be tempted as we are, yet without sin. We all would also read in the book of Hebrews, we would read that there, the blood of goats and lambs couldn't cover what the son who came in the flesh, and only that son could cover. Superior. So when we say Nicene Creed, and we talk about him being very God of very God, we also need to recognize that he was very, very man. He was man, born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered. I was reading something the other day, or just came, actually just came across. It's LifeWay Research, and the poll found that 44% of respondents said that they've made a resolution about their health in the past. Additionally, 29% said that they've made a resolution about their relationship with God. And another 29% have made a resolution about their finances. This was on who had made resolutions and about what they had made resolutions. So, 44% of the people said that they have made resolutions about their health. The second most populous thing was that they'd made resolutions about their uh, relationship with God. But you know the thing that, that, that interested me was the third thing? It was tied with the second, and that was their finances. And I think our resolution, our resolution today should be that we are here. We are here to celebrate the life of Jesus Christ as the one who came in the flesh to live and to die for me so that I can have relationship with the Father If Jesus doesn't come, there is no salvation. If Jesus is not human, there is no salvation. Jesus Christ was totally God, totally man, and how that works, I have no idea. Except that God can do it. Except that God can do it. You go, well, isn't that just faith? Well, I don't see anything in it. If I believe that there's a God, I don't see anything in it that says that God can't do it. Mary stored these things up. Simeon had warned her her soul would be pierced because of her son's dedication to glorifying the Father. She had to learn it was not about her, but about the glorification of the Father. Following Jesus may bring about pain and sorrow, but it is about the glorification of the Father. It's not about me. It's about the Father, and that was Jesus in the flesh. The coming year will bring many experiences for us. Will we recognize them and rejoice in them because we know that we have a God who loved us enough to send his Son? I'd like to close. Our apostolic prefect sends us a prayer for the new year, and I think that it's an appropriate prayer, and I'd just like to pray that now. He says and he prays, Heavenly Father and Almighty God, as we bid farewell to 2021 and look to the beginning of this new year, 2022, we live in a world where many of your children are filled with disease in spirit and in body. We come to you this day seeking your presence and direction as we look to the coming year. Give us, we pray, the strength and the courage to meet the challenges of a changing world So help us to humbly put our trust in you as your son, Jesus did, as we make our journey. In the midst of this pandemic, give us the comfort and assurance of your Holy Spirit. Renew within us a steadfast faith in the midst of life's changes and chances. Restore hope within us despite disappointments. Rekindle love in our hearts so that we may delight again in you and your will for us. Help us to never lose sight to the sorrows and justices of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, and help us to respond with compassion to those who are in need. We pray for the nations of the world and their leaders. May they govern with right action and wise judgment for all. We pray especially for grace on all those who serve in your church, and we thank you for the commitment to serve you and your people. Be with all families and assure them of your love and concern for them in a world that is easy to be disconnected. Be our light and life from this Christmas season through all the year. May this new year be a time of growth for us where we welcome your graces and gifts with grateful hearts. May our hearts be hearts this year that forgive and be instruments of restoration for the sake of your kingdom. May it be a year we grow in in the virtue and goodness of your Son, who redeemed us, through whom we ask these things. Amen. It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. But could have never been prayed unless God became a man and died.